Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. You guys sound great. You look fantastic. And uh, I'm thankful that you chose to be here today. Uh, it looks better outside than maybe it feels outside. I actually think it feels great, but I had a lot of people walking in and like, oh, it's so cold. So we have the heat on for you. We had coffee. Hopefully it'll be warm enough to, for you to enjoy it when you leave. But uh, man, it, it was just a, a great thing for you to be here today. And so I'm, I'm thankful that you got up and chose to come and to be a part of Generations Church today on this Sunday morning. We think you made a good decision, uh, and so I'm thankful for that. There's a lot going on. I mean, there was Discovery Track Session 2 is going on upstairs right now. We've got about 50 G-Team volunteers that are staying after church for lunch today, so I'm excited about that. And uh, this was not in my notes. I said this. We celebrated it in our first service today. Uh, but last week in G-Kids, uh, we had 10 kids say yes to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Pastor Madeline, who leads our team upstairs, she's our kids' pastor, she, she told us as we were celebrating that in staff meeting this week, she said, like, I knew that it was like a real sincere thing for these kids because I asked them after they made that decision to step away and the rest of the kids played a game. So if they would skip the game to come talk to me, like, I knew that this was sincere, but she asked them, hey, what did you decide? What is it that you're saying and what are you responding to? And now she's, uh, she's resourcing parents to be the primary disciples of their children and a salvation class, giving them information about baptism. And so I'm thankful for the team that leads our G-Kids ministry, and I'm thankful, and I celebrate with you and our church family for these 10 kids that made that decision last week. We had a great night last night uh, in our March Madness event. We had a bunch of guys here, and if it smells a little bit like barbecue in here, it's because we ate real good too. Uh, we had some guys that showed up early yesterday morning, and they smoked some meat, and uh, we had a great time eating good food, and we watched some basketball, and we played cornhole and ping pong and axe throwing and all the various things, and then we came into this room. We worshiped together. And we also were challenged by our guest speaker, Bruce Deal from the City of Refuge. Just a really, really great night. And I'm thankful for the guys that were able to come and be a part of that. I know some of you were not able to, and that's okay. But I am thankful for those that were here because it was really a really special night. It already had me thinking about uh, the next one and when we'll be able to get together to do that again. And I'm, I was also thinking about, as I laid my head down last night, I was thinking about all the things that are upcoming. There's a number of them, but I was thinking about Easter weekend. And uh, Easter weekend is, is kind of the April 7th, 8th, and 9th. Uh, which is on the backside, if, you, if your kids go to public school or you're a teacher here in Cherokee County Public School, I know that calendar, that's spring break week, and it's on the end of spring break. So here's the thing. If you've already made plans to go to the beach or to go to Disney or just a kind of a staycation, whatever you got to do, be here on Easter weekend. It's going to be a great time together. Uh, listen, whatever you've got planned is not going to be near as good as us being together on Easter weekend. And so Friday night, Good Friday, April the 7th, we'll celebrate what we call Come to the Table, which is just a really unique experience where we reflect on the cross. And I hope you and your family will be here for that. It's going to be a really, really great night. We'll take communion together as a church family. And then on Sunday, April the 9th for Easter, we'll have a sunrise service. I'm calling that grassy area the lawn. I don't know what to call it. We may come up with a different name at some point, but out on the lawn at 7 a.m., we'll have a sunrise service that Easter morning. And then we will also then come into this space and worship together at 9 and 1030 for Easter. So I want you to be here uh, and celebrate. I can't wait to celebrate Easter with you. Today, we start a brand new series that really kind of gets us moving towards Easter called Journey to the Cross. 
And uh, a lot of people over the years, churches and, and religious groups, have, have talked about Lent as a journey to the cross. That's a 40-day kind of period of time where there's worship and reflection and uh, sacrifice and fasting to really prepare for the events of Easter. Well, this series is not that, but it is uh, an effort on our part as a church family to prepare for Easter and the events of the resurrection, but also for us to learn some things about the nature and character of Jesus Christ uh, who journeyed to the cross in literal form as he lived on the earth. And one of the things that I'm excited about for this series in the next few weeks together is our newest soap guide. We offer these throughout the year. Soap, uh, is, this is not something you take in the shower, but soap is scripture, observation, application, and prayer. It's a way to study the Bible. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be overwhelming to you. It actually kind of breaks things down into really simple forms for you. There's some instructions on the front of this and some scriptures on the back for this entire series leading up to Easter. And so you can get one of these on your way out today. But I would love for you to take this and journey with us uh, towards the cross and read the events that kind of lead us towards the Holy Week uh, and Passion Week there uh, in this soap guide. But this journey to the cross for us is is an effort to, again, prepare for Easter, but also to learn about Jesus Christ. So here's what I want us to do to start today. I want to ask you a question, but to ask that question, I actually want to set this up. So I want you just to imagine for a moment, and I'm not trying to be heretical, I'm not trying to add to scripture, this is kind of to get us in the right frame of mind and give us a proper context. I want you to imagine that you are the son of God. You you were sent by the father to come and to live on the earth. You were born of a virgin, you were raised by a carpenter and his wife. You grew up and became an adult. You had uh, this three years of public ministry. As my pastor described it, all of, all of the time I was under his ministry, you were 100% man and 100% God, uniquely blended together. There's never been another of your kind. If you were the son of God and you knew the cross was before you from the time you came to the earth, if you knew the cross was before you and you knew why, how would you act? What would you do? Because really, that's the story of the Gospels. Because what we believe as we read Scripture is that Jesus did come. He was God in the flesh, God incarnate. He came and he lived on the earth. And as he lived here, he was headed to the cross. And if you don't believe me, I want you to look at this in John chapter 12, verse 27. It says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? And he's answering himself, and he's kind of rhetorically asking another question. He said, should I say, it's in quotes here, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. And so he answers his own question by saying, like, how could I ask the Father to to pull me out of this situation when I'm headed right for the moment that I was created for on this earth? I was sent for this moment, for this hour, And as I read that, I start to think two kind of parallel thoughts at the same time. The first of them is, how amazing is it that that God came in the form of flesh, Jesus Christ, and when he came, he was constantly challenging those who listened to his teaching to not look at the culture around them and the life that they lived on this earth, but to constantly evaluate it in the context of the kingdom culture, which was counter to everything that they could see. It was this upside down thing. You've heard it said, but I say, this is what law tells you, but here's what I am in the fulfillment of that law. It was was so countercultural, so counterintuitive perhaps. And so he was walking around and he was healing and teaching and he he was really pressing into the religious establishment 
of that day. And so I love that he says in, in question and conversation as he's headed towards the cross, like, maybe I could ask the father to allow this moment to pass me by, but man, this is, this is my moment. The second thought that I have that, again, I said is kind of parallel to this is, how often do we recognize that we were created for this moment? Like, God could have placed you anywhere in history. He could have put you anywhere on the timeline of humanity, but he chose right now for you to be born in the family that you were born into, in the time that you've been born, to do some great purpose. I believe that before the foundation of the earth, there was a purpose that was established for you. And as we are conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, that we can fulfill that purpose. So how often do we look at our lives and say, God, I I recognize that I was made for this moment. And so if I think about that, and then I kind of zoom back out and I look just through the lens of Jesus Christ, how did he live? As he journeyed to the cross, as he, as he recognized that all of his life and all of his ministry was pointed towards this object, this cross that was before him, and he recognized the why of that cross, what did he do? And what would we have done if we were in his shoes? Well, I think the easiest way to answer that question, if we're talking about ourselves, what would we have done? The easiest way to answer that question would be like, well, we would have just done what Jesus did. That's a really good answer. They made some bracelets about that. That was a really good answer. Like, yeah, if you would have done what Jesus did, you'd ended up in a right spot. You'd have done some good things. But what is it that Jesus actually did while he was on the earth? And what did he do in that public time of ministry that's collected in the gospels there in the three years that he gathered some disciples together and he invested in them and had relationship with them and he he was preaching and teaching and healing and doing these amazing things and then he left through the cross through the resurrection ascending back to the father he left them to do something like how did he live i think there's a number of things that we probably point to but as i read through the gospels i see three things today i see three things and i want us to kind of answer this question what did jesus do as he journeyed toward the cross To start this three-week look, what did Jesus do as he journeyed to the cross? I think there's at least three specific things that we can see. The first one is this. Jesus loved people. Jesus loved people. Jesus never viewed people as an interruption to his ministry. They were always his ministry. It didn't matter if he was headed somewhere else. If they came and stopped his journey, he stopped to talk to them. Jesus loved people. The church at large has done a pretty good job talking about the love of God. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world. It tells us that. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, which is one of my favorite verses of scripture, says this, that God demonstrates his love to us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and he died for us. Like he initiated love before we were good, before we could earn it. He just loved us and he demonstrated that to us. But it's not just God the Father who loves us. Jesus, the son of God and the son of man, as he was on earth, this unique blend of God and man in human form, Jesus, the man, he loved people around him. I remember the song of my childhood. Maybe, maybe you remember it too. It said this, Jesus loves me, this I know. You can sing it. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Lift it up. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. 
The Bible tells me. You did great. You should join the praise team. That's what you should do. You should join the worship team right now. I'm going to tell Pastor Connor to come talk to all of you after this is over. No, if, if, I mean, the words were on the screen, but if you, if you knew that as a child, what were you singing? That Jesus loves you. And he loves you, and you can know that because the Bible tells us that he loves you. So what does the Bible say about the love of Jesus? Look at this in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So this is 13 chapters into the book of John. I'm going to keep reading in a second. 13 chapters in the book of John, like he's got a track record now with these guys. Like at this point, if he hasn't loved them, all they've got to do is go like, hey, um, question, question in the back. I don't feel like I know what you mean by that statement. You've never expressed love or affection to us at all. No, they didn't say that. He says, hey, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And look at this. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, when I read that line, that's personally challenging to me because I love the Bible and I love the church and I love worship and I love theology and I love the study of the things of God. I I do. I really enjoy that. I I promise. It's not me just saying, like, I really enjoy that. But people will not know that I'm a disciple, a follower of Jesus by how much scripture I know. They're not going to know that I'm a follower of Jesus by how often I go to church or how often I serve or how many groups I'm in or how much I give. They are not going to know that I'm his disciple through those things alone. They will know that we are his disciples. How? By loving other people. And when they see that kind of supernatural love that can't be initiated by us, that doesn't really make human sense, when we love people who persecute us, right? That's what he modeled for us. That's what he loved those who, like even sinners, even bad people can love people that love them. Even, even people who have no moral standing can like people that give things to them. But those that steal from you, those that persecute you, those that say things about you that aren't true, like you got to love those people. And when we do that, people are going to look at us and go, hey, there's something different about you. There's something unique about you. And all we have to do is say, hey, but it doesn't initiate with us. As he loves us, we take that love and we give it away freely. He said, they're going to know that you're my disciples in the way that you love other people. And so the disciples took this, this new command that he gave to them. And when Jesus left the earth, we see what they did in action that represents what we saw in the life of Jesus. Here's what they did after the resurrection. They served the poor. They preached the good news. They healed the sick. They spent time with people. They planted churches to reach those that others thought were too bad or, quote, the wrong kind of people. They were putting into practice what they saw Jesus do on the earth. All of those things we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus, and it's what he gave to them. Let me show you another example of what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14 says this. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. Now, I told you that I love the Bible, and one of the things that I love about the Bible is if you really want to study it, you can actually kind of figure out what the original text said. Now, how many of you know that the Bible wasn't originally written in English? You can raise your hand, and if you didn't know that, don't raise your hand and be like, oh, yeah, 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 I knew that. Just nod. It's fine. Nobody's going to test you on that, but it wasn't originally written in English. 
We really have three languages that the Bible comes to us, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And so if you want to really dig in, sometimes by going back to the original language, you can find some really rich meaning of some of the word choices that are used. And so if you're sitting there reading the NIV and your neighbor's reading from the New Living Translation and your neighbor on the other side is reading from the English Standard Version or you're reading a paraphrase like the message or you're reading from the New King James, sometimes the words in their Bible may be a little different than the words in your Bible. And you're like, well, how... How is this possible? Because there were a group of translators that took the time to go back to the original text and they looked at the original text, the Hebrew, the Greek, the Aramaic, and they decided what does it look like to write that same phrase or that same word in English. And some translations are attempted to be word-for-word translations. Some translations are phrase-for-phrase translations, and some translations are not translations, they are paraphrases. That's, that's what the message is. And so it helps us to understand it by reading it in kind of more modern language. But if you want to stick to kind of the richness of the text, you can go the word by word or phrase by phrase. Now, the, the thing that we just read here in Matthew chapter 14, there is a phrase there that says he was moved with compassion for them. There is not a single English word to capture what the original word here is trying to convey. You might think it's the word compassion, but it's not. It's something beyond compassion that conjures up action. Like he was moved by it. He didn't just feel a feeling. Like, I like you. He looked at the multitudes and he said, hey, there's something that's like, oh, that's, you know, hey, there's a lot of people and maybe they have some needs and I probably need to do something about that. He was moved by it. There was something in the core of who he is. And and literally, if you go back and study it, in the ancient Near East at that time, they thought that the kind of the origin or the hub of all human emotion happened in the gut. You ever have butterflies on a first date? You ever get nervous walking into a job interview and like there's something that tightens up? They, They felt like if you ever felt that feeling, it implied that your emotional center was right here in the center of your body. And so what they have here in this translation of this phrase is he was moved in his bowels. He was moved in his stomach with compassion and so much compassion that it, it made him, it forced him to act upon it and to go and heal their sick. Like there's something that takes place there. If you go all the way back to the root of that phrase that was translated moved for compassion, it actually means inward affection. There was great love that compelled him to do something and put it into practice. He loved these people. He was moved with compassion to the core of his being, and he had to do something for him so he healed, for them so he healed their sick. This is the same phrase that's translated in Matthew chapter 15, the same way. It's translated the same way in Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 8, and Mark chapter 9 when he responds to the needs of those who are right in front of him. He's moved by it. He's gripped by it. It's, it's not some, hey, and I've, I've said this, like we're so limited in the English language. I love my favorite sports team. And I love chicken fajitas. And I love my wife. They are not equal. There's a few of them that are close. But Corey's way up here. You didn't know which one I was going to say, did you? You didn't know. I mean, it's almost lunchtime. Fajitas, they're on the mind now. All of you are going to try to beat me to the restaurant. I got it. I know. I know. But we're limited. We just, we just have love. I just love. I love all these things. But what the writer here wanted us to know is that he was filled with an inward affection that compelled him to act, to respond. Jesus just loved people. It's not just a song that little kids sing. 
Jesus loves you. He loves you. He's moved by you and for your needs. He's not distant from you. He empathizes. Jesus loves you. As he journeyed to the cross, what else did he do? He healed people. Jesus healed people. You can see it over and over in scripture. We just read that his compassion caused him to heal their sick. The healing ministry of Jesus was a vital part of his ministry on the earth. And we don't know exactly how many people he actually tangibly healed while he was doing ministry on the earth. It it seems like it would be easy. You would just read the stories and go, we healed one, he healed two, he healed three, he healed four. And you would think you could just count them up. But then we come to verses like this in Luke chapter four, verse 40. It says, all those who were sick were brought to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. There's no number there. Was it 10? Was it 20? Was it 50? Was it 500? In this passage, all who were sick, everybody in the surrounding area that had any kind of sickness was brought to Jesus. He laid his hands on them, every single one of them, and they were all healed. So we don't have a specific number of people that he healed, but we do know from the accounts that are recorded that he healed the blind, he healed lepers, he healed those that were paralyzed, he healed the deaf and the mute, he healed the demon-possessed and the lame, among others. He also raised at least three specific people from the dead, Lazarus being the most famous story, his friend Lazarus, other than his own resurrection. But he also raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He also raised the, the son of the widow from Nain from the dead. And so we see at least three accounts of him resurrecting someone who was dead. It seems that there's no end to the healing power of Jesus. And what you need to know about us as a church is that we believe in healing. We believe it. We, we just prayed with some people that came forward in both of our services. Corey and I were able to pray with someone in the nine o'clock service. And I know others that stepped out to come forward for healing because I know their need. They've, they've shared it. And they're asking God to heal their body. There's something that they've experienced and they don't know who else to turn to or what else to turn to, but they are turning to God and asking him to do what only he can do. And so we have prayed with you. And when God has done exactly what you've asked him to do, we've celebrated with you because we believe in healing. We've also walked with some of you that have prayed for healing and you didn't get the report or the outcome that you hoped for. I've experienced that myself. Because you were praying for a very specific type of healing, God, this is the report. We want that report to change from negative to positive. We we want it to be really, really powerful. We want to see that demonstration here on the earth. And that healing perhaps took some other form, including perhaps death. And you hear people say, well, they received their ultimate healing. And I believe that. That's what happened to my mom 12 years ago this month. I believe that. And when people would tell me that, I would nod and I would thank them. But that's not what I was praying for. I was praying that she had cancer and she wouldn't have cancer anymore and she would still be here today. That's what I was praying. And so there are times when you pray for healing, you pray for a physical healing here on the earth and it doesn't take place the way that you wanted it to happen. So why does that happen? I don't know. I don't know. Is that okay for me to say? I don't know. I I, I do not believe it's because of a lack of faith. I don't. Because that makes healing about you and not about him. I don't believe that. But I don't fully understand why that takes place sometimes in the prayers that we pray. But here's what you need to know. Every single time you come to me and ask, hey, will you pray for my healing? I pray with full faith and confidence that God will heal you because I believe he will. Because I've just watched it and I've seen it. I read the stories and I have full faith and believe that God is a good heavenly father who knows what's best, and he has the power to heal, and he's demonstrated that throughout history, not just in the Bible, but even today. 
in a variety of different ways. I believe he can heal. But as I was walking that journey, and I tell this story from time to time, when I was walking that journey with my mom, just under two years of her battle with cancer, and I was, I was praying, and I was praying as fervently as I knew how to pray. We had th- literally thousands of people praying on a Facebook group every single day, and we were trusting God, believing for God, and kind of living and dying by every report, good and bad. I had a mentor in my life, a, a friend that I still have great relationship with who's walked his own kind of tragedy But he said to me in that season of time, he said, you know what happened to every person that Jesus ever healed on the earth? I said, no, what? He said, they eventually died of something else. His healing for them in that moment did not make them eternal on the earth, that they would live forever here. But he said it was a demonstration of his power to be more powerful than them being paralyzed or deaf or mute or demon possessed or even dead that he was demonstrating his power to overcome anything that we would face. And he did that time and time and time again, and he continues to do that. And so anytime that we pray for healing, we believe that he heals. And and my theology for healing is very simple. It comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, where it says this, he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds or by his stripes, we are healed. That's where my theology for healing comes from. I believe it with all of my heart. And so we pray for it with full confidence and faith. And when healing comes, we believe it's a byproduct of Christ's wounds. He experienced hurt so we could experience healing. I believe that with all of my heart. And I watched in these stories where Jesus time and time and time again, he loved people. He was moved by the needs that were presented to him. And Jesus healed people. In his journey to the cross, he loved people and he healed people. And what else did he do? The third thing that I see that he did is he saved people. He loved them, he healed them, and he saved them. You can love people, you can heal people, and you can help people, but we believe that there's something even beyond this life. We believe in eternity. We believe in heaven and hell. We believe that you and I cannot be good enough on our own, no matter how hard we try, to get to heaven without the sacrifice and the cross of Jesus Christ. We believe that there's no amount of good works that will save you. You're not saved by works. You're saved through faith in Jesus alone. And we think that works come after that, that they're a response to that, that they kind of indicate and show the work of God that's been done in our lives and in our hearts. But But salvation comes through Christ alone. And so we see over and over as Jesus is journeying to the cross, even before he got to the cross, that he's forgiving sins. Even as he's healing people, they say, hey, you know, and your sins are forgiven. He's just just kind of, and your sins are forgiven. He's saving people. He's forgiving sins. And then the ultimate work of the cross was what provides for the salvation of all humanity. We see that he was saving people. There's this really powerful story that takes place in John chapter 3. I already referenced John 3, 16. We know that verse. You probably have a coffee mug in your cabinet with that verse on it. But there's a powerful story in John 3 where Jesus talks to a guy by the name of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is only referenced in the book of John of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's only the book of John that Nicodemus is called by name. And so when we read these stories, we see that he appears three times. Once right here in John 3, we're gonna come back to that. Once he shows up in kind of one of the mock religious trials of Jesus towards the end of his life after his arrest. And and he asks this question kind of rhetorically to the religious leaders because that's who he was. 
He was a Pharisee. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. And so as they're kind of accusing Jesus of all of these religious faults, he asks this question of the crowd. He says, hey, don't we allow the accused to respond to the accuser? He said, hey, everybody, shh, let him talk. That was important in that moment. How Jesus responded was different, but it was important in that moment because it indicated that there were some even among the crowd who were responding to the message of Christ. And then we see him appear a third time after his death on the cross. He shows up with a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea wasn't his name. It was kind of where he's from. It indicated which of the Josephs in this story was a part of this. They take him down and they prepare his body for burial. And it was Nicodemus who brought the spices. An unbelievable amount. An extravagant gift to help prepare the body of Jesus for burial. But in this first encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus, there's something really cool that happens. Nicodemus shows up at night. And the reason that I think this is so important is because it kind of, to me, as I read it, it kind of indicates that Nicodemus didn't want a whole bunch of people to know that he was coming to Jesus to ask some questions. It should help you to feel good if you've got some questions about who Jesus is. It should help you to feel okay if your pursuit of him is a little bit awkward. If you're not really sure how to tell your friends that you've been running with, that maybe you're not going to be running with them anymore because you're kind of running in a different direction now and you're trying to figure all this out and you're asking these questions and trying to determine what it looks like to follow Jesus. Like, I I find great peace in the interaction here with Nicodemus and Jesus for people like us that have those kinds of questions. That this would be a safe place for you to explore those questions of faith. That you don't have to have it all together when you show up to a moment like this. Like, you can just kind of be in the presence of God and go, hey, I've got... I've got some things I'm still unsure about and that he responds to our questions. That's what Jesus did here. Nicodemus says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, hey, I see all these things. Now, we don't know how many sermons he had heard Jesus preach yet. We don't know how many miracles he had seen him do. But but we see he's like, hey, I've seen that there's something different about you. And what I've observed indicates that there is something about you that has to be connected to the Father. Has to be. You've got some power and some authority that I recognize right now. And Jesus responds to him. And in that response, he says, yeah, but listen, to be a part of the kingdom, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus asks him a question in the negative context. He said, surely you don't mean that a man would have to go back into his mother's womb to be born into this earth a second time. And Jesus responds to him in a very famous passage of scripture in John chapter 3 beginning in verse 14 when he says this just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him verse 14 said what It said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. What was he lifted up on? The cross. He knew. He knew in advance. And he said, when the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, all who believe in me, all who have faith to believe that salvation comes through me being lifted up and sacrificed on that cross, all of them shall not perish, but they will have everlasting life. And then we go to verse 16 where he says... For God so loved the world that he put this plan in place. 
that he sent me to come and to live. And what we said last week is that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Like he, he had a plan the whole time and he sent me to execute that plan because I'm journeying to the cross. But it's only John chapter three. There's a ton of other things to happen, Nicodemus. But you need to know that I came for a very specific purpose. And verse 17 spells it out. I didn't come, God did not send me to condemn the world. He sent me to save the world. Now let me ask a question, and this kind of goes back to our first question today, and maybe, maybe you have an issue with, with even asking a question like this, but how mean would it have been? How unfair would it have been if God would have looked down on humanity and he saw the people living in this time period and today and everybody in between and everybody before and everybody after. And he looked down and he said, Jesus, I need you to go down there and I need you to let them know that they aren't good enough. They never will be. And I want you to send them to hell. How mean would that have been? Now, here's what we know when we read the book in its entirety there is a judgment coming. And anyone who doesn't choose to receive the free gift of salvation that's provided for on the cross has chosen now and will choose for eternity to be separated from God. But Jesus said, condemnation is not my role. That, that, that's the role of the enemy. The enemy condemns you. He tries to convince you that you're not good enough, which is actually true. But I came to save you. I came to change your story. I came to change the narrative. I didn't come to condemn you. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation and guilt and shame is a tool of the enemy. But what we hear in John three seventeen is that he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And so as we see Jesus journeying to the cross, what did he do? How did he spend his time? He loved people, he healed people, and he saved people. And he's still doing that today. He's still doing that today. He loves people, he heals people, and he saves people. And so if you came in today and you feel unloved, if you don't take anything else away from our time together, but this truth that God loves you, that's enough. If you need God to heal you, you're sick in your body or your mind or emotionally or in relationship, God can heal you today. And if you came in apart from him, outside of a relationship with him, a sinner in need of a savior, as scripture says that all of us have been at one point in time, he desires to save you today. He loves you. He will heal you. He will save you. That's what he did. And it's what he does. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. With nobody looking around just for a second. Just a moment of reflection. So you kind of think about our time, time of worship, the moments of prayer. The word of God from scripture today. And if you would say to me, Pastor Jeremy, I... I need to be saved. I, I, 
I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I, I, I need him to forgive my sins and to be the Lord of my life. I need to be saved. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Thank you so much. Anybody else? Anybody else? In just a second, we're gonna pray. And when I pray, I invite you to pray with me and ask him to forgive your sins and to lead your life and then allow us to help you to take some next steps in relationship with him. But we celebrate with you now for the decision that you just made. And now if you would say, Pastor Jeremy, for me, I need healing. My body, my mind, my emotions, a relationship perhaps. I need God to heal me today. Would you just lift your hand right now? I want to pray for you. There's a ton of hands that are being lifted right now. A ton of hands. And lastly, if you would say, Jeremy, for me, I, I came into this place today and I'm just not sure that God loves me. I feel shame and guilt and condemnation for mistakes that I've made. And those that said they've loved me on this earth have let me down. And I kind of put that on God. And I just need to be reminded today that he loves me. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? You're not by yourself as you lift your hand today. Dozens and dozens of hands in this service and the last. Let me pray for us, God. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the journey of your son Jesus to that cross. And we thank you that as he journeyed to the cross, he modeled for us a love for people and the power to heal people and the power to save people. And so, God, we call on that power today, and we pray for every single person that's acknowledged their need for you today. And, Lord, as I'm praying, they're perhaps praying right now. They've lifted their hand to acknowledge that need, and in their heart they know. So, God, right now I pray that your salvation work, which was already completed on the cross, would be real to them. And that, God, they would acknowledge you as the Lord and Savior of their life, and that they would walk now in pursuit of you. God, I pray for every hand that was lifted for those who need healing in any form physical, mental, emotional, God, relational, whatever their healing need is, God, we believe that you can heal and we ask you to do that right now. Our faith is high. Our faith is strong that you will do what they're asking you to do right now. Bring healing to that place of need right now. And God, now I pray for every person that walked into this place feeling unloved by the loving heavenly father. God, as they leave this place, would their entire life be changed because they know you love them? Not just because I said it, but because your word says it, your son demonstrated it. The people of God that are a part of this house, show them. God, let people come into their lives that will reveal the Father's love to them over and over and over again. Let them know that you love them beyond any doubt that the enemy would try to cloud their minds with. And God, let them, let them walk in this life with confidence because they're operating from your love, not for your love. And God, let it set them free. Let it set them free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.